Hi, this is the American Psychological Association's Division 15 podcast series on emerging research in educational psychology. My name is Jeff Green. Thanks for joining us. One of my favorite kinds of scholarly papers are the ones I call the, wow, I totally missed that papers. These papers put a spotlight on something I was aware of, but hadn't really thought deeply about, or in some cases, they put a spotlight on something I just overlooked entirely. It's the academic equivalent of that picture of a woman where if you look at it one way, she looks younger, and if you look at it another way, she looks older. You may look at it initially and just see one woman or the other, but once someone points out that other perspective, you can't unsee it, and you wonder how you totally missed it. Dr. Ellen Skinner, along with her co-authors, have written a, wow, I totally missed that paper on bioecological models, specifically the many underconceptualized ways mesosystem effects happen and how new ways of thinking about collective effects opens up many new directions for research on how parents, teachers, and peers shape academic functioning and development. I'm thrilled to talk to her today. Dr. Ellen Skinner is a leading expert on the development of children's motivation, coping, and academic identity in school. She received her PhD in human development from Pennsylvania State University as part of the first cohort of developmentalists trained in a lifespan perspective. She spent the next seven years at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development and Education in what was then West Berlin, Germany, and then joined the Motivational Research Group at the University of Rochester. She is now a professor in the psychology department at Portland State University in Portland, Oregon. As part of the psychology department's concentration in developmental science and education, her research explores ways to promote students' constructive coping, ongoing classroom engagement, and perseverance in the face of obstacles and setbacks. She is especially focused on two ingredients that shape motivational resilience, close relationships with teachers, parents, and peers, and academic work that is authentic and intrinsically motivating. Today, we're talking about Dr. Skinner's 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Complex Social Ecology of Academic Development, a Bioecological Framework and Illustration Examining the Collective Effects of Parents, Teachers, and Peers on Student Engagement, which she co-authored with Nicolette Rickert, Justin Volett, and Thomas Kinderman. Ellen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. So let's start here. You described academic functioning and development as a complex social ecology. What do you mean by social ecology? Well, I think this is the general idea that all children live in complex social worlds. And those social worlds, there's a series of social influences. So I think that's the big first idea, that mm -hmm. things like relationships with parents, relationships with teachers, relationships with peers, make a difference in students' academic functioning and their development. So I think the first big idea is just that those social relationships and the social interactions the, that come out of them make a difference to how kids are going to function in school and how they're going to develop, you know, a whole series of what we might call academic resources, motivation, mm -hmm. engagement, on and on. Mm -hmm. And then I think the next step is the idea that these social relationships are not just isolated sort of streams of influence, but they're parts of, we call it the complex social ecology using uh, sort of the Bromf and Brennerian terms, which is that they're, they're all happening at the same time and they are interrelated with each other. 
So the Bronfenbrenner perspective is such a, a powerful one. And so there are these various components. There's the context and the process and the person and the time. And you hone in on specific parts of the context that maybe haven't been examined as much. And specifically, you hone in on mesosystems. Right. Can you help us understand what a mesosystem is and what you think needs to be unpacked about it? Sure. Well, I think in order to understand a mesosystem, you just have to take a minute and take a one step down with mm -hmm. the idea of microsystem. It's, that's not a complicated idea. It's the mm -hmm. idea that there are different settings that children, in this case, we're talking about students, where they live their lives. And each of these proximal settings, like homes and families or, or schools where teachers are living and classmates or, or where kids are hanging out with their peer groups, that each of these are having an influence on development, but that they are all together there. And that's this word meso. I mean, meso mm -hmm. just means medium. So it's like you jump up a level from the mm -hmm. micro, the proximal, and you say, oh, what the heck? All these microsystems are operating at the same time. Mm -hmm. And Bronfenbrenner added this idea that, holy cow, they're interacting with each other, how, how they're actually working. And so should I, should I give you an example? That'd be great. Yeah. So I, I would say like the simplest idea that people have is, oh my gosh, there's a spillover. So for example, something that's happening at home is influencing then something that's happening in school. Mm -hmm. Or you could have the idea of congruence. So it's better for a kid if what's expected and demanded uh, at home is the same as what's expected and demanded at school. Mm -hmm. And then we got to thinking wow, there's just so many more ways that mesosystems could be structured, could be organized, and could be working together. And that in the literature, we really haven't thought carefully about all those different ways that these streams of influence could be, you know, bonking into each other, shaping each other, and, and really that we might not be able to understand a single influence, a single microsystem, unless we think about what's happening in the other microsystems. And we certainly aren't going to understand the cumulative effect of all of those if we think about them one at a time, which is, I'll just say, what, which is what I was doing in my work. Mm -hmm. And uh, my co-researcher, my husband, Thomas Kinderman, he studies peers. He was busily you know, in his silo doing peer work. I was busily <laughs> in my silo working on uh, teachers and working on parents. And it was almost, we were like a little you know, prototype of how the field unfolds and then sort of through our conversations, not only are these things all going on at the same time, but you know they could be impacting each other. And whoa, wouldn't that be fun to think through the different ways that that might be happening? Yeah, I, I love that. So you know, I've I've taught Bronfenbrenner before, mm -hmm. and this is the wow, how could I have missed that part? Right? <laughs> like I I would say things kind of like what you were talking about, right? So there's this microsystem of a school and the child is affected by their peers and they're affected by their teachers. And then there's another microsystem with parents and, you know, and then there's this mesosystem where sometimes parents talk to teachers and teachers right. talk to parents and, and then anyways, and then there's the exos and I would just kind of yeah, keep going. <laughs> yes, just keep going. I, I think also there are, there are certain things that we assumed, you know, that we knew already, like, mm -hmm. We just knew that all three of those microsystems are important. And so instead of concluding that they each make their own independent contribution, it was almost like we just started with that understanding. And I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, mm -hmm. it's not, it shouldn't be an assumption. It should be, huh, I wonder if you know, that's true for every particular outcome. I wonder if you know, the attributes that each 
social partner brings might be different from each other. I wonder if the mechanisms through which they have effects, you know, might be similar or different. And so mm-hmm. it's almost like, you know, why haven't people who study the effects of teachers been talking to people who study the effects of parents have been talking to people who study the effects of, why haven't we been talking to each other? Because we're mm-hmm. all interested in social influences and we could learn from each other um, mm-hmm. about ours by thinking about what's going on in the other areas. Yeah, and those dynamic interactions are mm. kind of part and parcel of Bronfenbrenner's perspective, but yeah. I don't, I just don't know that I've seen anyone unpack them the way you have, which is just, it's wonderful to read. And so, you know, you called these collective effects. Right. And so can you tell us a little bit about what collective effects are and the types and how we should be thinking about them? Sure, sure. So I think one of the things that was interesting for us, I think just like you, when you when you touch on Bronfenbrenner, you just have to mm-hmm. love the idea of mesosystems. Mm-hmm. And I think it wasn't until we started thinking about the different ways that mesosystems could be organized, we kind of went back and read Bronfenbrenner again and said, okay, what do you have to tell us about the different ways? And, and so he gives you all these hints and clues. Like he talks mm-hmm. about spillover. He talks about, like you said, the, the, the idea of supplementary linkages. Mm-hmm. And so I think it for us, it was like, whoa, what do you know? There's all these different ways that it's been talked about. And we decided because of our own interests that we would think about, we, we, we talked a lot about what the right term, I think for a while it was called joint effects and then it was like combined effects. And we said, you know, collective is really good because collective effects really just says that you're th- thinking about how influences from multiple microsystems converge on some target outcome of either, you know, academic functioning or academic development. And mm-hmm. so the idea, it's almost like your visual is that you have, you know, a little a circle in the middle, which is your target outcome. And then you just have these sort of streams of light coming from all of those different influences. So from parents, from teachers and peers. So I I like the idea of streams of influence and they're Mm -hmm. all, you know, sort of streaming onto these targets. Mm -hmm. And and then once you say, okay, they're all there, yay. (laughs) How are they then, you know, working together? And so the simplest way, and I think this is what we've always sort of just has been the default assumption. We call it, they're co-active. So all three are active at the same time. And, and again, I think that's kind of the default. If you think about how you would examine that methodologically, yeah, that would be then the unique effects. And we would expect that everybody would have unique effects. And I will just say, sort of taking my husband's hat, uh, Thomas Kinderman's hat about the peers and everybody's like, yeah, but I don't think those peers are really so important. Are they? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's easy to sort of prioritize the adults. And so, yeah, that's a great model. But even when you're thinking about the idea of coaction or collective coaction, well, you know, maybe it could be more differentiated than that. So maybe for some particular outcomes, it would really be the adults that would make a difference, or it might be the classroom partners. So then the teachers and the peers who might make a difference. So we we say, yeah, there's cumulative coaction. So that's all three, boom, they're making a difference. But there would also then be this idea of differentiated coaction, where for mm-hmm. some outcomes, there might be a subset of these social influences that might be more central. And then there could even be the idea that there might be substitutive. And so, you know, from the resilience work, we know that one good friend makes all the difference. Well, you know, maybe it would be okay if you had either, or there's, you need a word that has all three possibilities, but that it could be that if you have high quality relations with parents, 
that's good enough. Or if you have high quality relationships with teachers, that's good enough. Or high quality relationships with engaged peers, that's good enough. And so they mm-hmm. might be substitutive. You might be able to have, you only really need one and it doesn't matter which one. And so if you only studied teachers, you would say, oh, you know, if you have really good relationships with teachers, that's positive. But unfortunately, if you don't, that's too bad. But we would never know that, yeah, except if you have really good relationships with parents, then they can compensate for or they can substitute for the effects of teachers. And so Mm -hmm. by only looking at one, we really don't know that there's different pathways that will lead to the same outcome. So that's just one of the categories, Jeff. So that's like, Mm -hmm. that's the idea of co-action that they're all running around together. So do you want me to keep going? (laughs) Well, I mean, that was was so helpful. And I just want to highlight this idea that, you know, I think it's easy for us as scholars to assume or just presume that the effects are cumulative. And I I study teachers and you study peers and someone else studies parents and we can all just kind of do our work individually. Exactly. And we'll we'll add them back up afterwards. Yeah. And I think it's just so funny that we don't know that's an assumption rather than a conclusion. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. we haven't even thought, is that a model? It's like, mm-hmm. it's not that we said, does this model make sense? It's like, oh, I didn't realize that I, you know, really had a model here. Yeah. And, and I think the the siloing, that's what it assumes, right? Is that mm-hmm. we can each study these independently. And then whenever we want to, we can just combine them and, and then we'll know exactly what's going on. Right. And when in fact, I mean, there's something really important about determining that for particular outcomes or developmental processes, maybe maybe the effects are substituted. Yeah. And, and that that is a major implication that could then inform all kinds of practice and future right. research. And and as you said, it's this kind of unquestioned, non-conscious model that you've right. really surfaced in this article, which is fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And I will say, though, you know, cut to the chase, we did then a review of studies to kind of illustrate mm-hmm. how you could use this framework. And a lot of the effects really were this uh, cumulative co-action. So I think mm-hmm. it's not bad. It turned out not, I think it but it, I love the difference between that being an assumption we start with versus mm-hmm. a, a conclusion that we come to. Mm-hmm. You know, we have now an empirical warrant rather than just an intuitive assumption. Right. And we can more directly test differentiated effects and other kinds of effects. And it could be that we just haven't found them because we haven't been looking for them. Yeah. And I also think it may be that differentiated effects will show up in different outcomes. You know, mm-hmm. so if you're looking at something like, um, you know, values. I'm, I'm a motivation person, so I do both engagement and motivation work. And, and maybe for some specific outcomes like values, that that may be something where really it's the peers and the parents who are doing that. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's almost like you have a little template in your mind that when you walk up to your outcome, you're like, huh, there are these possibilities and they may not pan out, but I sort of have a little playbook now where I can mm-hmm. go through those possibilities one after the other. And like mm-hmm. I said, then I'll, I can conclude sometimes that what I thought to begin with was true, but sometimes, oh no, it's more, it's mm-hmm. more complicated than I had imagined. Exactly. And, and once you have the playbook, you can't unsee it, which is great, <laughs> right? Because it, it yeah. forces you to think differently. So yeah. let's talk, you have another category of collective effects That's called true. contingent effects. Can right. you tell us a little bit about those? I'm happy to. And those are even, I think those are more complex because they mm-hmm. really say the effects of any one influence can't be understood without knowing about what's happening with the other influences. Mm-hmm. I'll just give an example. And there have actually been, I would say, a few studies that have, have looked at these directly. Some of the co-authors have done them. An example would be, so you, you see peers and, and you find out that kids who hang out with engaged 
engaged peers are more likely to be engaged themselves and, and kids who hang out with disaffected peers are more likely to be disaffected themselves. They both select that and then they socialize, they become more like their peer groups over time. And this is Justin Vollett's research, and Thomas was also on this paper. And really the question was then, you know, is that always true? Or are there going to be kids who are more susceptible to peer influences than other kids? Mm -hmm. And so the idea was that if you have, say, a close and caring relationship, a high quality relationship with your teacher, then maybe the peers aren't going to really play such a big role. And that was really what he found out was that the kids who reported the teachers as being highly involved, mm -hmm. then whatever peer groups they were hanging out with, this was like good news or bad news. So if you could hang out with engaged peers or disaffected, they were not influencing your engagement. It was like the the teacher was such a powerful, positive influence that it kind of mm -hmm. didn't matter what the peers were up to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for the kids who had less high quality or teachers that they perceived as providing less involvement, man, then it was like open season. They were completely susceptible to the effects of peers. So if they were hanging out with engaged peers, yay, that was really good for their engagement. But if they were hanging out with disaffected peers, that was then going to be like exerting a downward pressure mm -hmm. on their engagement. And so if that's a, a possible mechanism, that just means that we can't really understand the effects of peers, what they're going to do for kids or against kids, unless we also understand the kind of relationships that they're having with adults. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, again, reinforces this idea that you it, it's really important to gather data from all of these groups, right? Teachers, yeah. peers, parents, that these collective effects might not be discernible unless you have data on each of them. Right. And I also, I mean, I think it's both messages that even people who are interested in one can collect information on the other two. But I mm -hmm. think there were a lot of studies that we found, you know, we did that review of 32 studies. There were a lot of people who had data on all three and then just looked at them in, in what would be the simplest intuitively understanding way possible, which is sort of the, the unique effects, you know, like the cumulative co-action. And I just kept thinking, you guys, you guys, you've got the data you need if you want to look at more complex effects. You can see if they're contingent. You can mm -hmm. see the, the example I gave would, would be what would be called an enabling or disabling effect. So mm -hmm. it turns on or off the influences. But you might also see amplifying effects so that the effects of, you know, if uh, parents are extremely supportive, then teachers can have a, an even bigger bang for their buck, or they might be buffering or protective so that mm -hmm. if relationships with teachers are not particularly positive, if as long as parents are supportive, they can buffer their kids from the otherwise negative effects of these problematic relationships with teachers. So it was almost like we wanted to write a little note to everybody who had all these <laughs> you know, studies. Hey, guess what, you guys? This could be super interesting. You don't have to collect new data. And I also feel like Say you do those and then they're not significant. Mostly then you're just like, okay, well, never mind. I'm not even going to mention them. But if we sort of had the idea that we were all looking at these together, there could be a repository where you would say, yeah, we look for that and they're not contingent. They are just mm -hmm. coactive. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, then that would also be something we could learn from each other rather than it just doesn't appear in the paper because, because those analyses didn't produce a significant effect. You just you know, didn't report them. Right. That jumped to mind for me. Right. I was just thinking like, gosh, imagine all the people that did a study expecting to find an effect and didn't find it. Yeah. And maybe that ended up in the file drawer right. when, in fact, it was just a contingent effect or it was, you know, something that they just hadn't explored. Yeah. Yeah. And it could be it could be meaningful when it's not significant. Now, it's just mm -hmm. like 
maybe, you know, in this particular case, the effects are not contingent. Maybe they are relatively independent and can just be added up. So, okay, mm-hmm. that would be good to know. Mm-hmm. And you could test each of those alternative conceptualizations right. and figure out right. which one fits best. And, right. you know, when you don't find anything, it doesn't have to be right. know, submitted to the journal, the null hypothesis. But, <laughs> right, you know, right. The, the you could all, right. You could all be aware. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, again, I, I think, you know, it's this framework is just so helpful for thinking more uh, in more complex ways about what the possible relationships could be. And another one that you argue for as a collective effect is sequential effects. So can yeah. you explain those to us? Sure, I'm happy to. That's actually one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea that relationships with one social partner can have an effect on an outcome both directly, but also by affecting relationships with other social partners. So I would say one that's well discussed is in the attachment literature. So Mm -hmm. here's, you know, parents and they have these secure attachments with the kids and form these close relationships. And then you mail the kids off to school and you think, huh, the fact that they've had this history of, of a secure, responsive relationship then sort of primes them for having a more secure attachment or a more positive relationship when they show up at school with teachers Mm -hmm. or when they, are interacting with peers. Mm -hmm. And so to me, it's almost, it opened up this idea, which, you know, I've been studying parents forever and I've just been, okay, parents are doing this and they're having an effect on kids at school. Well, how are they doing that? It's like, Mm -hmm. they're not there. You know, so if you think about, it's so different than if your classmates are sitting there, your teachers are sitting there, you know, parents are mailing something in, you know, we, we say it's almost like the parents are packing a suitcase for the kids. And then the kid Mm -hmm. is taking the suitcase Mm -hmm. with them. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're crossing microsystems here. And it's like, oh my gosh, one of the things that could be packed in the suitcases is what it is you need in order to create positive, warm, caring relationships with Mm -hmm. the teachers and the peers that you're, you're going to meet. And so, Mm -hmm. huh, that would be then a sequential effect, which would be that they're all involved, but it's really one of them is having its impact through shaping another one of those relationships. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like you said, once you get this idea, it's so big in the attachment, you're like, oh, could that work in another direction? You know, and, and so it's like, huh, could teachers be affecting engagement by affecting the kinds of relationships that kids are going to have with peers in the classroom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Tom Farmer calls this the long hand of the teacher, you know, the invisible hand mm-hmm. of the teacher. Mm-hmm. And so, huh, or, you know, could it go the other way so that a kid is hanging out with a bad crowd and that then sort of has the teacher give up on them? And so now it's the, those peer relationships are affecting what's happening with the teacher's relationship. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think it opens up the idea that sequential effects could go really, I think, in any direction. Yeah. And it reminds me so much of the literature on, for example, like self-regulation. So Mm. when parents help their child develop good self-regulation skills, those kids then go to school, they have better relationships with teachers, and that in turn affects the child's academic engagement, right? Right. There's so many examples that you could come up with. And the self-regulation affects how they, I mean, you look at preschool or Mm -hmm. uh, kindergarten, how they interact with peers makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. So Uh yeah. And I love the idea also of all those you know, mechanisms in between. I think Mm -hmm. this question, I'm such a, you know, I I do believe strongly that social relationships are shaping these outcomes, but I Mm -hmm. I think it's really good to say how, you know, how is that happening? And you just named a how, you know, so Mm -hmm. that it can be what I'm putting in your suitcase is these self-regulatory capacities that are then Mm going to allow you to do certain things when you arrive, you know, Mm -hmm. in this new microsystem. And so I think asking how and then I think especially comparing how so you know mm-hmm. are the pathway and you kind of know they can't be right because parents are having their effect 
from outside of the microsystem, in this case, where engagement is showing up. So it's like, I wonder what those steps are and are they similar or different to a pathways through which teachers are having their effects or through which peers are having their effects. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was just very interesting that, you know, one of the things that came out of the little mini review that we did was that almost every mechanism that people tested for teachers, you know, boom, 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 those were all pathways. Mm-hmm. And it was much more difficult to find the pathways through which the parents were having their effects. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the moment when I was like, well, gosh, you know, they're not even in the building. So they, they were having effects. So it's not that they weren't, but it's like made you think a little bit more carefully about how they were able to shape something that was happening in a microsystem where they weren't even, for the most part, present. Right, right. And your framework includes these processes of operation, kind of antecedents and how they can vary across microsystems and pathways, as you talked about the mechanisms, et cetera. Right. So you really, you present this wonderful framework that allows us to think about a lot of different kinds of developmental outcomes and progressions. It's not just academic engagement, although right. that's the one that you that was focus example. on. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's a wonderful um, focus. And you've mentioned this review. Another uh, great part of your article is it doesn't only make a theoretical contribution, but then it backs up that theoretical contribution, backs up the utility of the framework with this review of academic engagement and disaffection research. And you've you've already talked about some of the things that you found mm. using this framework to kind of organize that literature. Were there other findings that you thought were really important or really intriguing when you looked sure. at it from this perspective? Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely. And I think it's good to talk about, you know, the top hits. But but I think I just wanted to say a word about why we wanted to include the review, because mm-hmm, as you mm-hmm. remember, as a person who was the editor while we were submitting this, <laughs> the whole thing was kind of big. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, my gosh, you're telling mm-hmm. us almost like too much. You have this like giant framework and then you want to do this review. And we really wanted to include the review. And you, you helped us sort of turn it into an illustration rather than an exhaustive extravaganza. But it was super <laughs> helpful, I think, because we naturally have a lot of enthusiasm about the framework. And I think I mentioned to you that we got asked one time if we wanted to do a special issue for, for a journal and if we could do it on the topic of our choice. And we were like, oh my gosh, we're really working on these. I hope it's okay for me to say this. We call it the 3B paper because it's parents, teachers, peers. So it was like, mm-hmm. we're working on these 3Bs. And so that's what we're thinking about. We would love to do that. And we told the editor and the editor was like, ho-hum, we kind of already know that. So we were like, no, you know, it's just, you don't already, we don't, you think you already know that. And so we really thought that it would be important then to have the review so that you could show, you could actually do something with this that is meaningful. You know, you can collect up this group of studies that have always been out there, but they had never been looked at you know, together as a unit, Mm -hmm. you can then sort of organize them according to these different types of effects. You can then sort of see what some trends are. You can sort of have some tentative ideas and you can identify also gaps. And so I Mm -hmm. think we really wanted to include that review so that it wouldn't just be your reaction, which I love was, whoa, I never thought about that before. But I think for some people, it was like, well, we know that already. And so it's mm-hmm. almost like they skip over the step about whether you actually have to look at this. It's just, we'll, we'll just stick with our with our assumptions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's exactly right. And, you know, much to your credit, you pushed, right? So the reviewers and I were kind of like, I'm just not sure about this review. Gosh, it seems like a lot. And you you really made a good case. And I, I applaud you for pushing and, you know, <laughs> kind of sticking to your argument. This is important. It's going to work. And I'm glad that you did because the review really does illustrate the utility of the framework and brings up interesting findings on its own. It also 
illustrated and identified, as you said, some new directions for research. Were there a couple new directions that the framework showed us that you're excited about? Yeah, definitely. So I think the thing, I, I would say there were a couple of things, and, and the, I'll just do one about teachers, one about peers, and one about parents, which is that, you know, I've been studying teachers forever, and I really love them, but I was really surprised sort of how consistently they just really, so this is all about engagement, so this might not be true for other aspects of academic functioning, but they were just like always there when they were you're looking at unique effects or when you were looking at this, you know, co-action, they were always or, or most likely to be significant. Um, and then when you looked at substitutive effects, it was like you can't substitute for them or you would then go to the co-active or the contingent, sorry, operation and you would say, OK, well, is it possible if you, know, you have negative relationships or, or low quality relationships with teachers that you'll end up with? You can compensate for that if you have good relationships with teachers and parents. It was like, no. Whereas, for example, uh, if you had low involvement with parents, if you had high involvement with your classroom partners, teachers and peers, then you were you were still OK. You weren't significantly better if you added mm -hmm. parents on top of that. But that wasn't the case. with you, you couldn't substitute for them. They were in there when you were looking for mechanisms. Boom, boom, boom. All the mechanisms. So I was like, wow. You know, you know that teachers are important, but you feel like I'm sending in some other heavy heaters here. I'm, you know, parent involvement is important. And they're still, you know, always when you're saying they're over and above and, and you can't substitute for them and you can't compensate mm -hmm. for their loss. So I think the centrality of teachers really became clear to me in a way that it wasn't when I was just studying teachers, you know, by themselves. Right. Yeah, and then I would say the thing that was most exciting about peers, and I think this was especially true, Justin and, and Thomas are, are both, you know, died in the wool uh, peer researchers. And they just kept saying, you know, peers don't get the love <laughs> they should when we're thinking about academic outcome. You know, there's so many kids who only go to school because their friends are there. And yet we keep talking about the parents and we keep talking about the teachers. And so I thought it was cool that the, the peers just were able to sort of hold their own, that they kept also showing up as, you know, over and above. I was a little worried when they were, were going to send them in against the adults. And it's like, nope, they, mm -hmm. they really are, you know, continuing to accumulate mm -hmm. in their effects. The other thing I thought about peers is that I think a lot of this research, this isn't the peer researchers, right? We were looking at people who are actually studying 3B. So a lot of these people, all these studies, you know, had parents, teachers, and peers in them. And they would often then have the same attributes for all three social partners, which makes perfect sense to me. And support was like the big one mm -hmm. that everybody loved best. And so you would go in there and you would have, say, academic support or emotional support from parents, from teachers, and peers. And the peer researchers were kind of hopping up and down and saying, why, why are you doing that? You know, so it, it makes perfect sense that teachers and parents both want kids to do well. They want them to engage. They want them to do well in school. So they're going to be providing support. But why would you think that's how peers work? Peers don't care. They don't have an agenda, you know, for you to do well in school. So why send them in with the same attributes that you're giving to the adults when that may not even be the way that peers are having their effects? And so when we could compare studies, sure enough, there were some researchers who looked at peer attributes, like how engaged are the peers, how much do they like school, how much do they enjoy school. And it was almost like what the peers could offer was something else. They could offer, I'm here, buddy. I'm having a great time. This is really fun. Let's do it together. And I think that may be why they were adding on you know, to what the adults were doing was because they were coming at it from a different angle. It was like, I can offer you my participation. And so it, it's more fun for you to participate when I'm participating. And then we can do this 
together. And so I thought by thinking about all three of them at once, it it really made you think, oh, who's got the agenda? What yeah. are you bringing to bear? Where are you? You're doing it from outside the room versus from inside the room. And it was like I could see things about my adults that I hadn't thought of before by thinking with other people who are experts and peers. You know, like there is research that the teacher engagement, right? Teacher enthusiasm, teacher enjoyment does make a difference to kids. And I thought, oh, that's the same pathway that peers are taking. So it's almost like if you were going to look at teachers and peers together, you would either look at engagement for both of them and mm-hmm. see how that's, you know, working together or or maybe they just have different roles. I mean, it makes sense the adults are doing one thing, they're following this agenda and the peers are not. They're just, you know, living their lives and hanging out with their buddies. And so, you know, maybe we should think about different attributes that are important or different, you know, mechanisms, different pathways. Mm-hmm. But I just keep thinking, you know, whatever I want to study and make it simple, the students have got all of this going on. I mean, mm-hmm. they have their buddies, they have their teachers, they have their parents, and they also have their siblings and their cousins, you know, keep going. But but I just keep thinking that researchers have overly simplified, I have overly simplified how complex the social ecology is for kids. Sure. And your framework really highlights how it sometimes is not coactive and cumulative and I think what you just said really illustrates how it causes researchers to think differently. We come up with new questions when we start taking the complexity seriously and really diving into it. You also identified a number of methodological innovations and kind of foci that weren't maybe as highlighted as they could have been. Do you have a couple of those that you're (laughs) excited about? You you and the reviewers were also like, okay, you guys, you can't also do a methodological primer on this. But (laughs) but I think it, it was interesting, you know, to see the different ways in which people approached these questions. And so I think I would really focus on the contingent ones. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, there's a default for how you would look at contingent effects. Oh, this is an interaction term, you know, so a mm-hmm. lot of people did look at it that way. They you know included main effects for each social partner and then all possible interactions. And most of the study, well, I think there weren't a lot of studies that looked at contingent effects, but I, I would just say that people who use that sort of add that interaction term in there, those did not necessarily or mostly didn't uncover contingent effects. And there was another set of studies that used what I'll call configuration. So more pattern centered or person centered mm-hmm. analyses. And so mm-hmm. I just, I love the idea that if you think about these social ecologies, that every kid is in a social ecology that has a potentially a different configuration. Mm-hmm. And so if you could think about, oh, here's an ecology where you have high support from all three. So they actually are studied as in the high, high, high group. And here's somebody, you know, who has low support from all three, low, low, low. Oh gosh, cumulative support, cumulative risk in terms of relationships. And then there's all these other possible configurations in between. So you have Mm -hmm. one, but not the other two, or you have two, but not the third. And I think that those person-centered analyses, the configuration approach, I think that gets us closer to what an ecology is Mm -hmm. like, that it it sort of cumulatively has all of these elements. And and you're not like, holding one constant. I mean, that's just a problem when you're looking at unique effects in the world. They're not constant. It's like they're all there. And so if you can then think about them in terms of these configurations, I think that's probably a better match for the idea of these complex ecologies. 
I thought that was a really important point, and it relates to another point you made about these microsystems in that it might be the congruence or mm. the dynamic interactions between them, not just in a contingent kind of way, but Absolutely. more about how well they fit together or not that could yes. affect development. That's another really exciting idea that I think could lead to a lot of great research. Great. Yeah. And there are people looking at that already. I mean, one of the things that this paper did for us is we kind of looked around more, and mm. I think... I would say two big things. One is that we look at 32 different studies here. And then we did a whole separate review, which we spared you from having to deal with on <laughs> motivation as an outcome. And we really found that almost no one named mesosystems as what they were looking at. They were all mm. looking at Rebe, so parents, teachers, peers, but only two of the 32 papers actually explicitly called mm -hmm. it a mesosystem effect. Mm -hmm. And I really think if we can look at each other and say, that's what we're looking at, that then opens you up to this template, all these different possibilities. But I think it also opens you up to the idea, okay, you love, I love, we love collective effects, but huh, what about other types of mesosystem effects? And so mm -hmm. that, the multiple worlds framework, mm -hmm. I think for, for me, is just a beautiful example of really saying, all right, let's think about how these things mesh, how they are aligned, how they converge. And the idea really that kids are having to navigate all of them. And if mm -hmm. they are not uh, aligned and, and, and the multiple worlds of framework is really failing at Cooper, they were really focused on kids from minoritized immigrant backgrounds who might have very different cultural microsystems at home than or in the peer world than they did at school and what it's like to then have to navigate those and and to sort of make it across those those boundaries, how, how mm -hmm. challenging that can be, how adults can sort of be either gatekeepers or bridges for kids. So I think the idea of mesosystems, you know, I love our framework, but but what I love more is, whoa, there's much more to be thought about, to, to, mm -hmm. to think carefully about additional ways besides, you know, we, I love spillover, I love supplementary, blah, 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 collective, but oh, what about this whole convergence um, mm -hmm. idea? What about the idea of boundaries and and how those boundaries can repel kids and, and kind of who's in charge of making sure that those are bridges and not walls. That's such a great way to put it. And your article does a fantastic job of exploring those kind of next steps, maybe beyond Bronfenbrenner mm. or extending out from Bronfenbrenner, yeah. um, whether it's multiple worlds or phenomenological variants of ecological right. systems theory. Right. I mean, there's just, there's so much in your paper. I really can't encourage our listeners enough to check it out and, and read it deeply because there's just a, a wealth of great ideas in there. So collective effects are something that you can think about in kind of a relatively straightforward statistical way, but my sense is that there's more to it and that we probably need to think about it in a different way. Is that accurate? I think if we do that, that's really a shortcut to, I don't know, boredom or something. Mm. I, I think it, it was very important to think about what are the actual psychological processes that you're looking at. And so, you know, my example I gave before of, of Justin's paper, where you think of, yeah, we're looking at, you know, what we would call enabling and disabling effects. But it's so much richer to say we're really looking at what makes kids susceptible to the influences of peers. Mm -hmm. and that's a conceptual question and can be answered with some of these, but you can keep going. And I think those are, to me, much more interesting questions if you can get them into the substantive domain. So, you know, questions like 
the kids are at risk if their parents are not particularly involved? What will be the protective factors for kids who are at risk for this reason? Or if kids are, are having difficult relationships with teachers, you know, can they be buffered from the effects of those? You know, so to me, I would say it was easy and the reviewers felt that way too, of sort of falling into the typical models. And we see that in our doctoral students, our statistical models. And I think we are robbing ourselves of interesting questions if we use those as our templates rather than sort of the substantive questions, you know, go visit the resilience area, visit the differential susceptibility area, the differential reactivity mm-hmm. area, diathesis stress, and the multiple worlds theory, for example. Those are much richer frameworks for thinking about this. And, and I would say, let the methodologies and the statistics follow from those more interesting substantive questions. Mm-hmm. Also, the reviewers were so helpful also, but one of the things they said is, you know, you're asking us to do too much. You're asking us to look at parents and teachers and peers, and then we made a big pitch for, you know, it needs to be longitudinal because you really can't talk about influence if you're really just looking at concurrent, and then it has to be longitudinal over a window where the influences are stable. You know, so, so we were kind of making, I would say, some methodological demands And I think what struck me in response to that is that there were many papers in the review that had all of those characteristics. And so we weren't asking people to do more than they're doing already. We were asking people to think about what they're doing in a different way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were saying, you know, like for me, I'm already studying teachers and parents adding peers is not that huge addition, you know, and I want Mm -hmm. it to be longitudinal and I know what my window is. Mm -hmm. And so I think what we're asking people to do is to maybe add a little bit to what they're doing, Mm -hmm. but to add a lot of thinking about it and talking to other people who are working on those influences that are different from the ones that you are centrally focused on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a framework like this can feel a little overwhelming, but in, in fact, it can it can be managed and can lead to some really productive directions for scholarship. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just say, we teach a lot about Bronfenbrenner, just like you do, just like many people do. And our doctoral students started calling it Bronfenbrennerian hyperspace. You know, you stand back <laughs> and you sort of behold the entire yeah. thing. And yeah. I think one of the things about our paper is, you know, yeah, that's there and and stay mindful of it. And the reviewers were helpful to us and tell us a little bit about macro systems. So that was, that was great, an opportunity to do that. But the thing that makes Bronfenbrenner manageable is if you say, let's focus in on, say, mesosystems. And so there's a big complex world around that, and, and I don't want to lose track of that, but the mesosystem question itself is complex and interesting and really important. And so I think taking a piece of Bronfenbrenner and saying, I'm just really going to focus on that and try to understand that deeply, I think it's a way to make the larger framework more manageable. You zoom out, but then you can also zoom in. And if you're thoughtful about what you zoom in on, that it's something where, yeah, this is really important and this is not understood extremely well and not studied very deeply, I think you can you can make a big difference. That's wonderful. That's what we want to do. And articles in educational psychologists really do illustrate ways of making a difference in new ways. And that's what your article does. So mm-hmm. I want to thank you for doing all that hard work. And, you know, I, I'm sure as you were writing the paper and as you've continued your work, it's informed what you're doing now. Do you have some current scholarship you're excited and that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, well, we, I think once you sort of get onto this idea, you suddenly kind of turn around and look at everything you've ever done and say, huh. <laughs> 
you know, maybe it's just a little more complicated. So I, I would say right now, one of the things I'm excited about is I've been doing a lot of work on academic coping mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. always was looking at how parents support that and how teachers support that. And there has been this moment, again, a Thomas Kinderman who's looking at peers is like, you know, could be that peers are making a difference to academic engagement. And we did a review of um, social influences on academic engagement. And at the time we did the review, maybe two years ago, there were only two studies that looked at the effect that peers might mm-hmm. be having. Mm-hmm. And so so Thomas said, you know, let's do that, but let's do it as a 3B. Let's really see how that may be interacting. You know, you, you think you know a lot about parents and teachers, but maybe, you know, there's some more contingent effects in here. Maybe there's some sequential effects. So for me, it just kind of opens up whatever target you're looking at, that there's many more questions you can be asking about it than you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, your paper is a, wow, I totally missed that. How could I miss it kind of paper? Um, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> Let's wrap it up there today. Um, I encourage our listeners to check out your 2022 article in Educational Psychologist entitled The Complex Social Ecology of Academic Development, a Bioecological Framework and Illustration Examining the Collective Effects of Parents, Teachers, and Peers on Student Engagement. And Ellen, thanks again for talking to me today. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. 